Hello and welcome to Your Strategy Implemented, hosted by Scarbeck Associates, the podcast where we meet with individuals from all walks of life to find out about their lives, their views, and their extraordinary journeys to successful execution of a strategy. My name is Rebecca Stevens, and today we had the privilege of welcoming General Sir Michael Rose, one of Britain's most distinguished soldiers and a former head of UK Special Forces. As an army officer, the execution of strategy was central to his operations in Northern Ireland, the Falklands, Bosnia and elsewhere. And with his wealth of experience on the ground, we ask him now, in the aftermath of the United States' decision to pull out of Afghanistan and the expeditious and unchallenged march of the Taliban into Kabul, to comment on the US, the UK and ISAF's implementation of strategy in Afghanistan from 9-11, 20 years ago, to today. What went right? What went wrong? What was the context and the complexities? And what might have been different? So, Michael, I know one of the things that you feel strongly about is the need for a clear and cogent strategy. In the light of that, can you comment on the Americans and their allies' strategy, or perhaps lack of it, in 2001 and in the last few months? Obviously, any human activity needs a a clear and cogent strategy, whether it be tying your shoelace or whether it be invading Afghanistan. And surprisingly, the Americans had an extraordinarily good and effective strategy uh, when they embarked on Operation Enduring Freedom. And we have to roll back a bit to see see the context in which they did that. After 9-11, the Americans determined that they would take the war into the enemy's camp and not just sit there waiting to be attacked by insurgents or terrorists from around the world. And their first move was into Afghanistan to take out the al-Qaeda, of course, who launched the attacks against the buildings on 9-11. And they put together support from the international community to do that. Surprisingly, even Iran was against the Taliban at that time. And so with the support of the neighboring countries, uh, they launched Operation Enduring Freedom, which in October 2001, whereby using the Northern Alliance, the Tajiks from the Panjshir Valley, mainly on, as ground troops, were supported by special forces who had laser designators and could target the um, air power above them. They swept through um, Afghanistan at extraordinary speed and by November uh, had, had removed the last remaining elements of the Taliban out of um, Afghanistan, um, and particularly from their stronghold in Kandahar. And that was an extraordinary, the most brilliant operation and the, the key to that particular operation is that we were fighting with and for the Afghans, not against them. And that put the groundwork in for uh, the implementation, ultimately, of a very successful strategy. And the strategy consisted of a repeat of the Dofar War. Now, during the Dofar War, where, uh, if you remember, in the, in the 60s, we had handed over um, uh, the Protectorate of Aden, to the communists and the what was called the PDRY, the Popular Democratic Front for the Liberation of the of the Yemen, moved across into the Dofar province of Oman, who were a disaffected tribes people, rather like the Pushtu or the Patans were disaffected, many of them uh, with the Taliban at that particular point in Afghanistan. And so by moving in with the tribes up on the Jebel in Dofar, we were able to turn the tide against the enemy who'd come across the border and produce a cordon sanitaire along the border between the Dofar province of Oman and the PDRY, Aden. And no one could move, because a lot of these tribes were interrelated anyway. By embedding ourselves with them, learning their culture, understanding their requirements, they were basically nomadic, herding people 
uh, we were able to um, use them as a kind of screen. And there was no way that the PDRY could put any mo- any military force across the board without them getting to hear about it and us being able to um, respond accordingly. Uh, at the same time, because the government in Oman was totally dysfunctional under Saeed bin Taimur, the old Sultan, old-fashioned Sultan, who poisoned the wells if he didn't like a tribe, um, he, he was removed, and his son, uh, Sultan Qaboos, who had been at Sandhurst and then had worked as a clerk, I think, in the Ipswich County Council, so he knew not only the military aspects, the administrative aspects of running the country, he was put into power. So there was a, from top to bottom, there was a highly effective structure which the, which the strategy was able to uh, produce good results. And the result was, at the end of the day, Oman is a stable, peaceful and, and, and effective outward-looking country. And we were in the middle of doing exactly the same in Afghanistan. The American and British Special Forces had spread themselves along the border. They were working with the Pushtu tribes. They understood the Pushtu Wali, their, their codes of honor. They were embedding themselves with it when, hey, one day, Bush and Blair decided to go and fight an unwinnable, unnecessary and costly war in Iraq, withdrew our resources from uh, Afghanistan and thereby betrayed uh, the Afghan people, break our promises to them. Uh, and another element about why that, uh, that started to go wrong from 2003 onwards, of course, was that the Afghan government was utterly corrupt and remained so throughout its, the 20-year war. I mean, that was a subject we never addressed. And that yes. was, again, a, a cause for failure. But the initial strategy that we had embarked upon in 2001 was a doable uh, strategy. It would have been far less costly than what came out at the end. We were not trying to nation build at that time. Uh, We were merely trying to um, stop the Taliban coming back into Afghanistan and let them uh, make their own arrangements. Yeah. I mean, it's completely fascinating to hear that. I mean, arguably the first and master principle of war is is the selection and the maintenance of the aim. So... What I'm hearing is actually that the maintenance of the aim was forgotten. Exactly that. I mean, the basic principles of war were were completely forgotten uh, in pursuit of political um, uh, adventures in in Afghanistan. The the whole um, principle of war is concentration of force, a selection and maintenance of the aim and momentum. They're the really key things and obviously intelligence. And we were getting all those things in place when we took off for uh, for Iraq, abandoned. And Afghanistan, yes. and that started. And the war from that moment on was, in my view, unwinnable. But we never adjusted our strategy. We merely poured more resources in when we returned in 2005. Instead of looking at the basic factors where things were going wrong, uh, for various reasons, we tried to stick with the strategy and policy we had, which was basically pour more troops in. Um, and the result, as we know, was a disaster. Yes. So... It's, it's completely fascinating listening to that and actually incredibly relevant for, for all of us in whatever walk of life it is um, to be focused until we've completed what it is we need to do. And the events of last month, um, particularly the speed with which the Taliban took power, it seemed to surprise the US, yes, but indeed the whole world. I mean, why were the Americans so unprepared for that? Again, I think it was a question of, of hubris, a lack of willingness to uh, adapt and change your strategy in order to face up with the fast-changing events that were happening on the ground. And that, of course, is a recipe for disaster when you're trying to implement any strategy. You have to adjust what you're doing. You have to adjust the resources and maybe even adjust your overall aims if it turns out that what you're trying to do is going to be uh, wholly unsuccessful. 
And what happened, I think, was that the, from the moment we abandoned the Afghan people in 2003 and went off to Iraq, I think an awful lot of the Afghanis realized that the Western powers would not stay in Afghanistan forever and were already hedging their bets and making deals under the surface with the Taliban, often whom were from the same tribe as they were. And so all the time there was a slow degradation. And I think you can look at the evidence of the amount of desertions that were happening from the Afghan army and the police to the other side. Uh, and that was yeah. an indicator yeah. that people were hedging their bets. And you can go back to um, my own early military um, experience in Aden, uh, which was a protectorate, as I said earlier on. And the, um, the British had been there. Um, supporting the Sultans in the same way as we did in next door in Oman for 100, 150 years. Uh, and we were not there as an occupying power. We were there enabling the Sultan to, to uh, rule the country in a, in a, in a, in a fair and, and a successful way. Yes. What yes. happened was that, was that in 1967, under pressure from the Americans, uh, Eisenhower was very keen on a policy of, of decolonization and the, the Labour government at the time determined on a policy that we would not have any military bases east of Suez. And without any warning at all, he suddenly announced that the British would be withdrawing from Aden, the Aden Protectorate, in 1967 on a given date. From that moment onwards, everybody changed sides. Uh, people we'd been working with for 100, 120 years immediately went across and joined the National Liberation Front, for the, um, for, for, uh, which was the... Uh, the insurgency that was going on at the time, uh, funded by um, the Americans and, mm. and NASA from Egypt. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the, 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 the number of massacres uh, took place. British soldiers who were embedded in the federal uh, army uh, were murdered. Uh, uh, and th that is an absolute example. When you say you're going to go, then people will change sides and, and join the winning side, and that's a natural human response. And I think, in a way, uh, people in the Middle East uh, can read the tea leaves better than we can in the West. We will go on with a lost cause with a misplaced sense of loyalty. They don't seem to have that. They realise that being on the winning side is what actually matters. And that's exactly what happened. So their view that the Americans would not stay forever and would not hold the ring until there was a properly orderly transfer to the Afghan armed forces and government, I think was triggered by their precipitate removal um, in the middle of the night from Bagram Airport. And yeah. at that moment, it was quite clear to everybody that the, that the Americans were, were doing a runner. Yeah. And, of course, everybody at that point either fled or changed sides, and the collapse was totally predictable. Yeah. I'm hearing the words here, Michael. I'm hearing communication. I'm hearing relationship building. I'm hearing trust. Trust is the key to the whole thing. We yes. were trusted when we first went into Afghanistan on Operation Enduring Freedom. We were absolutely trusted by the... Uh, the Pushtu tribes, because we were living with them, we were embedding with them, we were eating their food, we were staying with them for months on end, not just coming in and out, but we were actually there. And they trusted us and we trusted them. And then yeah. one day we broke that trust and it was downhill ever since. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's, yes, it's so fascinating and, 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 and sad to hear. I mean, uh, trust and with that respect as well. Uh, how vital an element in strategy implementation is stakeholder management? Well, I mean, considering President Trump's administration, you know, they only negotiated with the Taliban leader, um, not with the Afghan government, and they had no correspondence, as far as it seemed, with the NATO allies. 
Well, that was evidence that there, by then total trust had broken down with the, between the two parties. And I think the Americans wanted to get out with the, with the least complications. And of course, if they'd included the Afghan government in the negotiations, that would have been much more complicated for them to make a, an orderly withdrawal. They were just basically packing their bags and going. But I think you can go back a bit further than that, is that they realised that by then that the Afghan government was totally corrupt. Right at the start, in 2005, when we returned back to that country with a big military force, we embarked on something called security sector reform, which means putting in all the civil aid development uh, into the Afghan giving it to the Afghan government, the, the resources to do that, with a few civil servants and others embedded in them on what is called capability building. Our idea was to enable the Afghans to do the civil aid development themselves by giving them money, giving them some advice, uh, and letting the, the, the process work through to the people in, on the ground who actually needed new hospitals, new schools, new roads, new um, irrigation channels, etc. But of course, the money was stolen. And everybody knew that money was being stolen. For 20 years, we watched that money being stolen. The British put in three billion pounds, and half of that went missing. The Americans put in $63 billion, and over half of that went missing. It, it is in today in the form of tire blocks in Dubai, uh, office blocks in Washington, etc. Uh, the people on the ground knew that was happening. And so, uh, but we, part of our strategy was to, was to deliberately ignore that and hope that the, the, the capability building effect would take place. I visited the hospital in um, Lash Kagar two years after the British, which, whose camp was alongside the general hospital, um, and asked them why there was no running water and no electricity in that hospital, although there was an MRI scanner rotting in the car park that had been delivered by the British DFID organisation. And the answer to me was, oh, the Royal Engineers are not allowed to do that. They could have done that in two days after our arrival not allowed to do that because we have to put the money at the top and wait for it to come out at the bottom. And of course, the money never did come out at the bottom. And I think that break, break, breaking down of trust by the, between the Afghan people and the Afghan government and the Americans realising that meant the Americans were just going to do a runner at the end of the day. Then it would collapse. But, but, but Michael, just listening to you, that, that was known for 15 years. It was. Absolutely. Why was something not done about it 15 years ago? Well, I, um, I, I think that the, the, the corruption, what, why did the, the Western powers, the Americans and the British and others, not face up to the corruption? I think it was because they, they didn't want to, to lose faith, political faith themselves and admit that they'd been backing uh, a corrupt regime. I mean, they, it was well known that the heroin trade was being uh, run from um, Kabul, um, although we made many efforts to try and stop the heroin being um, exported from Afghanistan to the West. During our time there, the quantities actually, as is well known, uh, increased. And that is because we would not face up to the basic problems of the corrupt regime in um, Afghanistan. Former ambassador there, William Patey, once said to me, uh, the Taliban will uh, not necessarily win military, but they will win because of the of corruption. Yes. And he was absolutely right. Yes. Just... Uh, sort of fast-forwarding, Michael, to the recent events, um, and you made mention of the Bagram military base and the closing of that, and that was a big signal to the Afghan government and the Taliban. It, it also seemed to be logistically a mistake uh, in regards of evacuating people from Afghanistan, the closing of that airport. What, why was that done, do you think? And interestingly, on Independence Day, on July the 4th, I, I'm not. I think it was some sort of political gesture that they wanted. The Americans wanted to give something to the, uh, or the American um, administration wanted to give something to the 
um, American people that yes, we are withdrawing, and that mm-hmm. was a sort of political gesture. I mean, wh- whether at a tactical level it would have been better to have got people from Kabul out 35 miles to Bagram Airport or however far away it is and export them from there, that might have been a, a transport problem, but I guess it would have been far less of a problem with the benefit mm-hmm. of hindsight than having um, tens of thousands of Afghanis going to the airport and trying to storm the um, the facilities there, which is, of course, what caused that awful um, disaster that occurred there. Yeah. At Scarbeck, we consider there's very much to be learned from the military um, that's applicable for a wider environment, particularly business environment. <laughs> it's a big question, I know, but what lessons do you think there are from for business that could be drawn from these events in Afghanistan? Well, I think there's some incredibly... Um, obvious read across. I mean, first of all, you have to have the will at the start of, of, of any strategy uh, to ensure that it's going to actually succeed. And that means uh, as you go along, you've got to be flexible, adaptable, you've got to uh, alter your methods as you go along in order to try and achieve what you want at the end of the day. And you may even at some point have to uh, change your ultimate aims. Um, so I think that is the first thing. You have to have the will to succeed in any. Obviously, the strategy has to be doable. You have to have the right level of resources there. But you also have to have the right people in place. And uh, they've got to understand that there's got to be an element of trust from top to bottom uh, about, about the implementation of that strategy. It's no good uh, the leaders trying to micromanage the strategy from top to bottom. Uh, they'll never be able to do that. They will merely um, cause disruptions in the way things are happening on the ground. So they've got this element of trust where the leaders can delegate to the people and they have to believe that the people on the ground, if they tell them the particular part of this, uh, the implementation is not going right and that they need to change and adjust accordingly either in terms of more resources or changing their aims slightly. And all that is a complete read across from the from Afghanistan where none of that happens. Thank you for that. I, I could add one more thing, and that is, of course, that, the, that the, you have to understand the culture in which you're operating. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't understand the culture, then, then you're never going to succeed. Um, and and try, try, for example, to, to change the, the, the conflict and go back 40 years instead of the last 20 years, if you look at the Falkland Island War, that was a very nearly a disaster because we were trying to micromanage that war from 100 feet in a, in a nuclear bunker underneath Middlesex. Uh, and it was the Navy who were trying to run a complex, fast-moving land battle um, in, in the Falkland Islands 8,000 miles away. And we very nearly lost the war because, obviously, it was the wrong approach. The strategy implementation was completely muddled. Yes. Well, I remember, I mean, none of us knew where the Falklands were until the conflict. (laughs) Thought it was off the sort of north coast of Scotland or something. Um, But um, looking forward, I mean, if part of the the strategic rationale for ISAF in Afghanistan was to prevent militant Islamic groups from building a stronghold, I mean, what does the future hold now? And, you know, are there strategic imperatives we need to think about? Well, I, th- I think what we should have done, and again, you may say this is the benefit of hindsight, is that we, sh- we should have insisted on being included in with the negotiations with the Americans. And I think one of the things we'd have asked for is that we keep our embassies open. We were dealing with the Taliban, so OK, we realise at some point you're taking over this country. When you do take over this country, then you're going to need um, aid. You're going to need support. You're going to need help rebuilding that country. And if we close our embassies, we won't be able to do that very effectively. So we'd like our embassies in the same way the Russians have kept their embassies, even the Chinese have kept the Indians, etc. Uh, then, of course, um, uh, we would be in a much better place today. 
Because what you cannot do, and I've heard this suggested, is use humanitarian aid as a lever uh, in which to um, persuade or force the, the Taliban to be more liberal in terms of their treatment of women or, or uh, allow better levels of education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That, that, of course, is completely wrong. You cannot use humanitarian aid. It's against, uh, as a weapon of war, it's against the UN Charter and it's against natural justice because at the end of the day, it's the people who will suffer, not, not the, 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 the leaders of the Taliban at the top. Yes. I mean, you mentioned there both the Chinese and Russian embassies are still open in Kabul. Um, what does that say for the future, do you think, and you know, the global stage in that part of the world, or well, indeed I, across I, the world? Well, Afghanistan's always been a kind of crossroads uh, between the, the, the great powers and, and um, an area that's be, uh, where it's being uh, fought over. And that's um, right from the time of the British Great Game through the Victorian period um, through to today. But I think that the Chinese and the Russians aren't stupid. They'll be understanding the history of that country as well as anyone else. And I think the, the, they will concentrate not on military occupation. They'll concentrate on civil aid development um, and helping in that country. And, of course, they'll, they'll orient um, Afghanistan uh, more towards the, the, the Russia and China than they, they will towards the West for a while. And then I think the pendulum slowly will switch back the other way because, of course, at the end of the day, I think everybody wants to be more open and, and freer uh, than maybe the Chinese or the Russians would allow. Thank you very much. Do you think realistically, Michael, that is going to happen? What sort of time frame are you putting on that? I mean, you're looking at it again, another 20 years. Things will swing slowly. And one of the great gains uh, of, of Afghanistan, and of course you can't um, discredit everything that's been done by, by the, the West in Afghanistan, is that we have raised their level of expectation. We, we've put in a whole layer of population which understand um, the, the, the modern ways of doing doing business, you know, if only through the internet, uh, emancipating women, educating people properly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that is something that the Taliban will not be able to remove. It's there and it will, be, it will have a long-term effect on the way, the way that country develops in the future. Thank you, Sir Michael, for ending on that note of optimism. And thank you for joining today's episode of Your Strategy Implemented. It's been enlightening to hear General Sir Michael Rose's insights into executing strategy in the context of recent events in Afghanistan, the importance of maintaining strategic aim and effective stakeholder management, but just a couple of the lessons we can take from the devastating events of the last few months. In other news, we're happy to announce Sir Michael as a contributor to our new book, Making Things Happen, which is launching this autumn on the 25th of November. You can pre-order the book using the link in the description to read more about Sir Michael's strategic insights and also those of other contributors from a variety of different fields. Do please subscribe to our podcast series so as not to miss an episode. And to learn more about Scarbeck, visit our website, scarbeck.com, or find us on LinkedIn and Twitter.